Hi, I'm Charlotte de Courcy Bailey. Welcome to Mindset for Health, Tales of Extraordinary People. This is a podcast about the power of a human decision and the incredible ability of the mind to guide you on your journey through life, equipped with the skills to tackle adversity and to overcome setbacks. We are real stories with a little bit of science. Welcome to Mindset for Health. My name is Charlotte DeCourcy-Bailey. My guest today is John C. Coleman, naturopath, Bowen therapist, and author of three books at least. His work is in the field of assisting patients suffering from neurodegenerative, autoimmune, and chronic infectious disorders. And he's developed a protocol to help patients overcome Parkinson's disease, multi-system atrophy, and similar disorders. His program was born out of his three-year struggle and recovery from stage four Parkinson's disease and multi-system atrophy, diagnosed in 1995, and more recently he has overcome stage three bowel cancer. His books are Stop Parkin and Start Living, which was published first in 2005, Shaky Past, which was published in 2012, and there is another book on the way with the most gorgeous cover on it, um, which is called Rethinking Parkinson's Disease, The Definitive Guide to the Known Causes of Parkinson's Disease and Proven Reversal Strategies. John, welcome and thank you for taking the time to join us today. It's my pleasure. I'm really looking forward to our, our conversation today because um, there's a couple of bits of synchronicity, if you like, and I noted your Bowen therapy. I too, if any of my patients have realized that they've had long dental appointments, they may have noticed I've done some stuff around their jaw and neck at the end of an appointment to get them back in working order. So I too am a Bowen therapist. So how did you, I know you will talk about it later and its role in your treatment protocols, um, but how did you stumble across Bowen? I was doing a lot of research um, during my illness, trying to find ways to be well. And one of the journals that I was reading or subscribed to was the Journal of Alternative and Complementary Medicine, which is now defunct, but it was then published in the UK. And I, I came across an article written by Julian Baker, who is a UK-based uh, Bowen teacher. And he talked about the development of Bowen and this um, spoke to me. And so I, I decided I needed to find out more. And it took me a long time. Um, I didn't know where to look. I didn't have much internet access in those days. So I hunted around until I found um, a young man called Rick Loder, who was, um, uh, had learned Bowen from one of Tom Bowen's boys, six boys, um, Aussie Wrench, and Rick taught me the basics of, of Bowtech. And then much later, I met Libby Gordon, who taught me neurostructural integration technique, which is an advanced um, form of it. And then even later, I did some work with other schools. Uh, so it was, I guess I was guided to this, this journal um, and I found it valuable for my treatment and in my later research in looking at fascia, etc., I found its value in treating chronic disorders. 
Brilliant. So many of our guests keep talking about the synchronicity of finding the thing that they need at the time that they needed it. And yeah, there you are saying the same thing again. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, I'm going to start by asking you to please take the listeners on a journey back to your before your diagnosis of Parkinson's. And if you wouldn't mind sharing with us some of your um, heartbreaking circumstances of your earlier life that you believe fed into your, your illness. I think the process of developing illness for me started prior to conception. Um, so it was 1943, um, the world was at war. My father was stationed in Darwin. Obviously he'd been at home at some stage, um, but my mother was was pregnant. He had an older daughter who was very ill, uh, a, an older son who was angry and missing his father, and she was living in a primitive holiday house with no well, one tap in in the whole house, no bathroom, no toilet, um, wood fired stove, um, no services at all, no telephone and a half-hour walk to the nearest shop. So obviously an enormous amount of stress and distress. Um, following my birth, um, um, my mother wasn't well. Um, my father still wasn't home. Um, there were some people who came to ostensibly assist her, uh, and that was the beginning of... Uh, abuse experiences in, in my life as a tiny baby, and that took 60-odd years to discover. Um, as it, the, the family was then quite conflicted, um, as I say, my older brother was usually angry. Um, Dad came home when I was about two and a half, and I didn't want to know him. He was a stranger. And, and to my regret... Um, he died in, in, in um, 1996 and 93 years old, and I just feel I never really knew him. Um, we, we didn't know how to communicate. Um, but, look, I battled through um, various forms of abuse and distress. I was a frightened person. At nine years old, I tried to commit suicide and was pretty disgusted that I failed. Um, commenced smoking after that. I was addicted by the time I was 10 or 11. Um, but I, I mean, I don't think I'm boasting when I, when I say I'm smart. You know, I've got a high IQ. And, and I loved reading. I loved words. I could lose myself in, in stories. Um, so I've, I did okay at school. Uh, I left when I was 16. You know, my parents had separated. Uh, I felt I needed to go out and get work, so I started work at a copper mine um, in, in those days. That was 1959. Um, there was no ear protection or, or respirators or anything like that, so obviously there was some injury there. But I, I loved being independent, um, or so I thought, but I was still a frightened person and tended to hyper-react. But... I wanted to be a musician. I joined a brass band and 
love brass music so I uh, left Tasmania came to Melbourne to learn trumpet um, failed pretty miserably but found my way through various jobs including 12 months uh, working in film process laboratory on night shift which was a very toxic experience both from a a physical perspective, but also with the chemicals that we were breathing in. Um, I've, I found my way into the music industry um, as a sales and marketing person, and because I had no qualifications, I uh, pushed myself to be better than everybody else. So I was putting myself under constant stress, um, smoked heavily, uh, became a binge drinker, ate garbage food. But um, was pretty successful, even though I couldn't see it. Uh, met Narita um, when I was in my late twenties. Um, we we married in um, a long time ago, <laughs> um, and in nineteen seventy nine, I think it was. No, it was nineteen seventy. We got married nineteen seventy. We had two fabulous boys, Damien and Sean, a year and two weeks apart. And look, that was that was probably the most joyful time of my life with these young kids, even though I was working really hard and travelling um, around the country and overseas for work. But um, still pushing myself and pushing myself. Um, when in... in um, 1969, we felt that, what am I talking about? 1979, we felt that um, I wasn't seeing my children enough. So I left my job with Yamaha and um, bought a health food store. Now, the only reason I bought a health food store was because I couldn't afford a hardware store. I wanted a hardware store. You know, very expensive, but we found a little rundown health food store not far from home. And I was kind of interested in that because I'd seen naturopaths growing up. In fact, my grandmother practised homeopathy for her family. I still have her first aid kits. Um, so we built up this little health food store and I saw people changing their lives with food and and supplements but the year after we bought it in 1980 Damien was diagnosed with uh, acute lymphoblastic leukemia and we weren't given a very good prognosis so we were we locked into the medical route I mean as you have to um, but we also looked for complementary therapies and I, I spoke to some fabulous people. Um, we just went on a, a journey of exploration and I spoke to Dr. Frederick Klenner in the US who was a pioneer in, in vitamin C for cancer. Dr. Harold Manor in Chicago had the, um, worked at a hospital where they combined complementary medicine and, and Western medicine for, for cancer, um, and a number of other people who were just so generous with their time. And we combined therapies for Damien. We saw him 
live better uh, than his peers. What we didn't anticipate was the violent attacks from the medical profession um, because we were using this. And this was incredibly stressful. So we were watching our son and, and you know, waiting for him to die and trying to keep him alive. And we were being attacked by doctors, often publicly, for using vitamin C. So uh, Damien relapsed in uh, early 1983. He underwent more treatment. We had a fabulous trip to uh, Disneyland uh, towards the end of 1983. That was sponsored by friends. It was wonderful. He, Damien collapsed and died as we were landing um, at Tullamarine um, yeah, Airport, but revived. But he was, he was gone for a minute or two. And that was with me, and that, that was an enormous shock. Um, so shortly after that, we discovered that he'd relapsed in his central nervous system, and we decided that we were given a less than 1% chance of extending his life for three months if we gave him very heavy-duty um, chemotherapy, and we said, no, that wasn't worth it. So he died at the end of 1983, um, and, and, you know, that tears your heart out, because in between, I'd been fired from my job just after I'd been told he was dying, so that was a bit stressful. Um, but then we thought with, we'd made friends with, with David and Jenny Good, whose son had acute uh, myeloid leukemia. And so we supported them, and Jenny came up with the idea that there should be an organisation to support families. And, and um, there, there were organisations for grieving and raising funds for research, etc., but none to really support families through the process. So the four of us started Very Special Kids, which is still prospering in Melbourne. We, we were overwhelmed with support and requests for help, but again, I was amazed and distressed at the opposition from the medical profession. And, and the abuse that was hurled at us and me in particular, because I was held responsible for administering vitamin C to my son, which one doctor said publicly was child abuse and in fact I had killed my child. So here was this, this conflict of emotions. I was watching this fabulous organisation grow, but I was being abused and my presence was inhibiting very special kids' growth. In the end, to allow it to survive and, and to function in hospitals, I had to withdraw and break contact. And that was like watching another child die. So, look, I picked up, you know, my socks again and, and um, carried on. Um, at the end of 1989, um, my younger son, Sean, and I walked the Kokoda Track, which was a fabulous experience. Just after that, my wife and I separated. 
And a couple of months after that, I again lost my job. Um, so I was unemployed and pretty much bankrupt and you know, things, things were not good. So eventually, after some months of, of unemployment, I found a job as an operating theatre technician at the Royal Women's Hospital on night shift. I'd never done anything like this, but it was a job and I needed money. But I learned a lot. First night shift, I think, in some ways, was very healing in that I spent a lot of time on my own, I think. But it was also very damaging in that the night shift is very distressing to the body. And I decided to go back to school. I'd started naturopathic studies in 1980. I thought I'd go back and finish it. Um, so I worked at night and studied during the day and I slept for a couple of hours when I was lucky um, and spent the weekends trying to catch up. Uh, but as I say, I, I did learn a lot. And then a few years, about after three and a half years, I switched to another hospital on day shift and... Um, or day and afternoon shift and started studying in the evening. And that's where I collapsed. So in 1995, I had been ignoring symptoms for a long time. I'd had intermittent and then constant headaches since my teenage years. I'd had tinnitus since my teenage years. Um, I started developing a tremor in my late 20s, increasing over my... 30s, hand tremor and head tremor. But I wasn't going to let anything stop me until I'd finished something. So in, in 1995, my body was crying out for me to take notice of it. And I'm saying, no, 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 I'm going to finish my diploma and then I'll have a little rest. And one day my body said, no, you're going to rest now. And I just fell over. And uh, I was shot off to a neurologist who said I was depressed and prescribed antidepressants, uh, uh, doxepin, which had as adverse effects all the symptoms I was displaying. Um, so I went back and I saw other doctors. I saw particularly a, a fabulous neurosurgeon who spent a long time with me. Um, I'd worked in theatre with him on and off over the years. And he said, look, you have Parkinson's disease. There's nothing I can do as a surgeon. Um, try not to take the medication. I thought, that's interesting. And then another surgeon pulled me aside and said, you have Parkinson's disease. He'd seen me in the theatre, that's all. He said, you have Parkinson's disease. Don't take the medication. Now, the, the librarian at the hospital and my theatre manager were, were terrific and they allowed me free use of the library. So I, down, I found papers and studies and abstracts and all about Parkinson's and what they all said was, you can't get better. You've got Parkinson's. You can't get better. So that was the beginning of the journey. I was this failure, sick ugly old guy with Parkinson's disease and being told that was it, babe, you know, give up on life. That, that's an amazing story um, and I feel for your pain at the time. 
Um, where do you think your, your beliefs and your identity of the person that you were at that time was feeding into that? What kind of beliefs were you feeling about, you know, yourself? Well, I, I was always unworthy. Okay. Um, you know, my job was to put everybody else first. And that came from family and, and traditional churchianity, you know. My family was Christian. Um, what that meant was that they were church people. And that meant that love your neighbour as yourself meant love your neighbour better than yourself and, and do for others always before you do for yourself. So I, I, I'd grown up with that. And I'd grown up with being criticised for everything I did, whether it was good or not. And I'd grown up being told, look, if your nose is bleeding, go outside. Don't bleed on the floor. So it's like I wasn't worth anything. And I knew that to be worth anything, I had to do something. Not to be, I had to do something. And so that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to do something. And every time I did, somehow I was knocked over so a diagnosis of something like parkinson's a confronting medical diagnosis um how do you think we as human beings can go beyond fearful thoughts uh, sorry the fearful thoughts yeah that accompany such a profound diagnosis when you're told there is nothing that can be done what do you think people can well, do I, I was inspired many years earlier by um Dame Phyllis Frost, uh, who, who spoke at, at a meeting I was at, and she said, you know, when you ask God for help, you'll get one of three answers. Yes, no, or do it yourself. And I figured that when medical diagnoses are very much the same, we're told you have this thing, we can give you a drug. We have this thing, we can't, you can't do anything. You have this thing, and then we've got to say, well, I'll do it myself. And that's tough because all the experts in the world are going to tell you that we're the experts. We've got all the answers and the only answers. And if we don't have an answer, there isn't one. And that's what I heard. But I was lucky. You know, I was lucky that my neurologist treated me like dirt. I was lucky that I had friendly, fabulous doctors I was working with who said, you're a together sort of guy. Do your own thing. Don't take the meds. And I was lucky in that I started meditating the year before my diagnosis. I joined a spiritualist group and, and I, I was meditating on a daily basis. And this helped me gain more insights about myself and was actually very valuable, we know now, for generating great neurotransmitters. Brilliant, brilliant. So what do you think was the first thing that you might have done 
within yourself to start shifting in the direction of, of healing? What was that definitive moment, if you like, where you stepped forward or stepped up to I, the plate? I think, I, I think the beginning was anger. Um, because I, I was feeling, I was in pain, I was desperate, I couldn't walk or speak or um, do anything much. And I felt hopeless, but then I had four weeks sick leave and I became really angry because something said to me, my experiences in my childhood and working life have got something to do with this because I was always afraid there's, there's something there. And I became really angry because I felt that I was about a third of the way, maybe halfway through my studies, and this, this bastard disease wasn't going to stop me. Even if I died in the attempt, I was going to finish that diploma. I didn't care about anything else. I wasn't thinking about getting well. I was just, it's not going to stop me from finishing my diploma, which will be the first qualification I will ever have gained. Yeah, perfect. How powerful, how incredibly powerful. And as you started taking action, and often... Um, other guests have said, you know, the action is messy. It, you don't know what it is you're supposed to know and you don't know what it is you're supposed to do and you just, and there is nothing better sometimes than messy action because that's what's needed. How do you know, how did you realise when you were starting to turn a corner and why was it that you committed so heavily to, I mean, I guess you've told us yeah. doctors were telling you Western medicine wasn't holding any answers, but how did you come to start that? really deep dive on alternate therapies for Parkinson's? Um, I th there were some insights from meditation. As I say, I joined a spiritual group and that's very powerful meditating in a group. And there were some insights from there. And one of the things that was pointed out to me was that, that I, I could hardly walk and I would stagger to this group. I would crawl up the stairs if I had to go upstairs and I couldn't speak coherently. But if I was meditating deeply and there was always a leader there and they would talk to me and they said, you're speaking coherently in meditation. So that began this sort of insight. I didn't know what to do with it then. But then again, a lot of synergy here. A friend said to me, a friend from college said to me, you need to go and see Marg Wood. And I said, who's Marg Wood? She said, oh, she's a homeopath. I said, okay, have you been to see Marg? She said, no, but my mother has. And I thought, well, this is crazy, but I'll call Marg Wood. And and I, I called her and she said, yes, she'd see me. Now, you know, this was a very difficult conversation because my speech was so incoherent. But um, I managed to get through. Many years later, Mark told me that the only reason she saw me was that I was so pig-headed. 
because um, she didn't think she could help. But she became a, a, a mentor. So some of the homeopathic remedies helped, some were miraculous in, in helping some symptoms, some were useless. We tried hundreds of them. But Marg talked to me and she kept saying, you know, but you are beautiful. You know, why, why, why do you think you're ugly? Um, I saw a craniosacral therapist. I'd been referred to her by my naturopath, Hansworth Cock. And, and uh, Julie just kept telling me, you're in control. You know, it's your decision. So the, here were two strong women saying, you know, you, you can do this, you can do something. Um, so there were, there were a lot of people saying you can. I didn't always believe it. Now, I really didn't see any improvements for many months. But one of the things I did, and I don't know why, I'd started to keep a journal and I just, just had, you know, my old diaries and I'd scribble at something. And, and when I say scribble, I mean scribble because my handwriting was appalling. Um, it's still pretty bad, but, you know, it was awful. And, but sometimes every day and sometimes a couple of times a week, I'd keep some notes about what was happening. And one of the first things I noticed after five or six months was that I wasn't urinating as often at night. Now, it doesn't say much, except if you remember, I, I was going to the toilet 10 or 15 times at night and I couldn't walk, so I had to crawl there. So I wasn't getting any sleep. And one night, you know, I felt really hopeless and I going back through the journal, I realised... Okay, I'm only going five to seven times at night now. Something is happening. And so, you know, that gave me that little bit of extra incentive to keep on plugging, keep on meditating, trying to eat better food, trying to be active, learning techniques of dancing when I walked so I could stay upright and and singing when I spoke so I could be intelligible. Yeah. Fantastic. And you've mentioned a couple of things there that I know are part of your, your protocol and something you hold as very valuable. And one of those is the role of food and the role of gut and foods that for Parkinson's disease really harm and other foods that really help people on their journey to wellness. Would you like to talk to us a little about food and gut? Sure. Well, it, I mean, it's becoming more and more recognised now that the, the gut is the centre of our health. You know, that's where we absorb our nutrition, everything we need to make our body and everything in it, or when we absorb things that will stop us being human. Uh, but more important, we know now for people with Parkinson's, that's where most of our neurotransmitters are made. So 70% of our dopamine is made in the gut and transported to the brain along the vagus nerve. Um, I, I read about this neurotransmitter called anandamide, the bliss neurotransmitter, which occupies the cannabinoid receptors. 
that's made in the gut, most of it, you know, and, and serotonin. So this was a lot of error and trial. So it wasn't trial and error, it was error and trial. I love it. <laughs> and, and what I've discovered both with my own personal story and, and others, there are some foods in our Western society that are damaging to everybody, but particularly when we're very unwell. So um, grains, grains aren't meant to be eaten by humans. You know, they're inflammatory. Animal dairy products, except interestingly enough, organic butter and, and, and um, ghee. But the, the milk, cream, cheese, yogurt, so inflammatory and they block calcium absorption. So they actually cause osteoporosis. They cause inflammation. Um, aspartame, the artificial sweetener put in so many foods, is one of the most neurotoxic chemicals on the planet. Um, and, and, you know, junk food, nutrition-free food is just a waste of space. So I knew from my own experience that I had to eat you know, vegetables and some good protein and and try and maintain that that energy or I was going to fall over again. And, and modern research has reaffirmed that. And every year we see more and more research telling us you've got to eat good food if you're going to be well because that's where we make every chemical we need. Now, if we're constipated, we're not going to absorb good food. So we've got to poo. Yep. Couldn't you know, there's, the, there's that old thing, if, if you don't eat, you don't poo. If you don't poo, you die. And that it's so many people with chronic disorders are constipated and have been for years. And Western medicine will tell us that one bowel motion a week is okay. You know, well, my view is a minimum of two a day. Good ones, big poos. You know, I'm a, I'm a naturopath. I talk about mucus and stools all the time. And and I I knew from again personal experience. I was incredibly constipated as I became unwell, even though I was urinary incontinent. And I knew if I could somehow have a bowel motion, I felt better. Everything felt better. So we've got to get the gut working. And we know, again, from quite recent research, that alpha-synuclein, a very important protein for the brain, is made in the bowel and the appendix. And again, transported along the vagus nerve. Now, if alpha-synuclein in a constipated bowel becomes misfolded, it becomes Lewy bodies, which aggregate in the brain and destroy neural pathways, and that's implicated in Parkinson's and dementia and a number of other disorders. So the gut is vital to our health. Wonderful. Thank you so much for just um, explaining that for the listeners. You also talk about aqua hydration formulas in your protocol. So obviously food, but hydration critical as well. Yeah. So 
we talk about synergy and here's another synergistic event. Um, I'd gone back to school and the um, lecture room was up steps and I would crawl up the steps to get there. And one day when I arrived late, I realized there was a guest lecturer there by the name of Dr. Yaroslav Boblik, who's a neuroendocrinologist. And he and uh, Leonie Hibbert, a naturopath, had developed these products called aquahydration formulas for athletes. For athletes who hit the wall. Now, when athletes hit the wall, they've run through their aerobic energy, anaerobic energy, they've gone to fight, flight, freeze response. They've run out of all that energy and they're starting to shut down. And the aquas, I won't go into the whole thing because it's a long, long story, but the aquas are designed to work with our hypothalamus, which controls the fight, flight, freeze response, to reassure it and say, you know, life's okay, you're safe. And that allows the hypothalamus to reduce its demands on the adrenal glands, which then allows us to hydrate better. So there's a couple of things happening there that are important. One is we need water to transport everything in our body. Nutritional elements, supplements, drugs, neurotransmitters, hormones, enzymes, they all are transported by water. Even the fat-soluble ones piggyback on water molecules. So we need that hydration. When we're in fight-flight-freeze response and you know, from my history, and now we've seen in research by Bruce McEwen, if we're in fight, flight, freeze response for six weeks or more, we get locked into it. And that response becomes its own danger. So we just go on getting it. So when we're in that response, we're taking hydration away from the parts of our body we don't need and pushing it all into the core. So... Our, our primitive brain, our instinctive brain, um, our heart, lungs, our big muscles. And that's elevating blood pressure, but it's depriving areas of our body from nutrients because it's not getting the hydration. So if we relax that fight, flight, freeze response, we hydrate better, we transport nutrients and chemicals around the body, body better. So I spoke to Yaroslav after the lecture. They'd never used them for sick people. They'd all been for well people. I became the guinea pig. Again, it was a lot of error and then a bit of trial. Uh, we eventually got the doses right after I had reached the stage of planning suicide again. Um, I just nosedived and we found out that what I was doing, I was pushing toxins around my body by hydrating too quickly. Yeah. And, and we, we discovered a, a protocol. So first based on, on my body and then working with other patients and we discovered a, a useful protocol. Um, and, and these are uh, really fabulous support for increasing nutrient absorption and the transport of chemicals around our body. Wonderful. 
And yes, synergistic again, as always. Yeah. The lesson is there when we turn up and we're open to receive. So you're mentioning about, um, as well, the role of, you mentioned earlier, the singing and dancing. Yeah. So talk to us about that. I mean, neurodegenerative disorders and movement being the challenge. Yeah, yeah. And, And this kind of surprised me I guess and and I I've loved music um, I was brought up with music and it was a, a haven for me and I said I, I failed miserably as a, a trumpet player but but I actually did quite well as an amateur horn player and um, so music was part of me and I found it when I was on my own at home if I could get some music playing imagine trying to get a a black vinyl record with your hands trembling and your body shaking and whatever, but somehow I get it going, that that could soothe me or uplift me. And and music's been a huge part, you know, when my son died, when I was on my own or whatever, certain music was just helped me through. So I'm not sure. I, I think the walking came first. I found that if there was rhythmic, music playing i could actually walk better now we've seen that in research later in in later years and it's on youtube etc but but in those days there was nothing and it was like okay if there was a march playing or a tchaikovsky dance or something somehow i I moved better i'd crawl better i could get up and actually lurch around and i found that if i started singing to myself in my head even in the hospital where I was, went back to work, if I sang to myself, and I sang a lot of Sousa marches in those days, I could actually kind of walk. I could stay upright and, and get my steps going. Now, at work, I was in charge of 16 technicians, and I had to give them instructions. And I couldn't speak coherently. So I found that if I used a sing-song type of approach I could get the words out I was still often hesitant um, but I could and so life became an opera so I'd sing my instructions to the technicians get to see it right now fantastic well, and the words would come out if I tried if I tried if I tried if I tried to speak it didn't work that's absolutely wonderful yeah and I'm so pleased to hear that there's such an extra role for um, brass band music and Sousa marches. That's fantastic. Um, now, just cycling back to Bowen therapy. Yes. So why, I know you're a great advocate of Bowen and you've said that Bowen therapy is the only way to treat. Or... No, no, not, not the only way. It's a, it's a very important way. And, and um, Okay, I've told you how I found mm-hmm. Bowen. And it took some time before I was treated and I didn't understand how important it was when I started seeing patients. So in 1999 and 2000, we ran a little research project, open label, never be accepted by Lancet, but, you know, it worked. So there were over um, 100 patients who all did the, the food, the self-love, laughter, meditation, aqua hydration formulas, and then 
they were given a choice of bodywork so they could have massage or reflexology or acupuncture or Feldenkrais or, or craniosacral therapy um, or, or Bowen. At the end of that uh, trial, I saw that the Bowen patients were doing better. They were making better progress, but I didn't know why. So then I had to look at research and I came across research by uh, Russell Sturgis, who developed fascial kinetics, another Bowen school, and also unpublished work by Eleanor Oyston. Eleanor is a very dear friend of mine and she studied fascia quite extensively. And what we found is that the Bowen moves create a thixotropic um, process in fascia. So when we're unwell or injured or too hot or whatever, fascia, which is this lovely jelly substance that covers everything in our body and is a part of our immune system and mobility and circulation and whatever, that that can become really thick and sticky. It can cook like an egg white. And there's two ways that we've discovered to uncook it. Okay, so you can't uncook an egg white, but you can uncook fascia. One way is yang twina. So it's a very ancient Chinese therapy of rolling tissue, pulling it away from the body and twisting. Now, it's very powerful and very effective. And I, I was lucky enough, I was trained in this um, when I was doing my massage training at the Southern School way back in the 90s. So that worked. However, it's very vigorous and it's very painful. So I, my wife had a very recalcitrant area on her back once and I treated her with Yang Twina and she didn't speak to me for three weeks afterwards and I've been trying to treat her with it ever since but she won't let me. But, you know, it is. It's very effective. However, what we found is that Bowen does the same thing without the pain. Yeah. And it's certain, the, the moves taught in Bowen, some of them are across um, the what we see is the joins in fascial planes. Now, fascia is continuous, but there are degrees of fascia, if you like. And fascia is around some, the gluteal area is a bit different from fascia in the thoracic area. And so over some of those adjacent areas when we do the moves, fascia becomes liquid and then can start to go back to the jelly-like consistency. So that helps with hydration, helps with mobility, helps with muscle function, helps to clear toxins out of the system, um, and helps with, with uh, often balance and, and joint integrity. And then a bit later on, I discovered yin twina, which is often called child twina or baby twina. And that's very, very gentle. So that's the, that's the pressure you would use putting a, a contact lens in your eye. Very gentle. And using that around the feet and legs can help with 
with balance and mobility as well. Uh, so I've, I've taught a few balance therapists that, and that's included in my new book as well. So it, it, the, the research by, by Russell and Eleanor in particular was important, and then there's been more um, research on fascia in Germany, which is telling us that freeing up fascia, getting it moving again is really important. Yeah, and as you said, it's throughout the body, so mm -hmm. we've got to address it. It's not an area that can be ignored. So putting all these things together, your recovery and certainly to look at you now because um, listeners we're doing this on zoom so i can see john um, and there is nothing there would make me think that you had ever been a parkinson's patient right in you um a lot of people who go through a recovery process then have to tackle the demons of is this going to relapse they we can live i'm, I'm someone who's recovered from back surgery and back pain and in the back of your head, there's oh. that, oh, what would I do? What might bring it back on again? My symptoms might return. So I know this is something that you have some um, fairly strong ideas about, you know, what are our priorities for wellness and what are the important things we need to do to improve and maintain our health? Please tell us a bit about that. All right. So I want, I want to just make it really clear, Charlotte. I still have Parkinson's disease. I don't have any symptoms. Yeah. So it's up to me, and and I have proven this through personal experience. When I am stupid and careless or neglectful of my body and my being, I develop symptoms. So if I work seven days a week and I become neglectful of my food and, you know, allow myself to become really stressed out, I will start to develop a head tremor and or a hand tremor. And that's a warning. And sometimes I don't see it. Sometimes my wife will say, your head's trembling, what's up? You know? Um, so I've got to say, well, what is going on? What am I allowing into my life? that is disturbing my equilibrium. Now, similarly, if I went back to my old eating habits of, you know, lots of coffee, lots of beer, um, lots of junk food, you know, grains, dairy, sugar, whatever, I'd get sick. Now, you know, I know that the bowel cancer was a result of my early life and early eating habits and the toxins that I put in my body because cancer like Parkinson's takes many, many, many years to develop. We, we don't even see signs of cancer until it's at least 75% grown, you know, to its full degree. Um, and, and so I know that if I neglect my body, if I eat badly, if I stop meditating, if I stop loving myself, then I will develop symptoms again. It's up to me. And it's the same with all my patients. And look, very sad story. I'll try and be really quick. Lovely woman um, saw me for two years, about stage two and a half Parkinson's. Um, at the end of that two years, she was totally symptom-free. 
totally symptom free. Has a big family, five grown up kids, grandchildren, a husband who is um, patriarchal. Okay. Because she was quote unquote cured, went back to her old lifestyle of taking care of the kids and the grandkids and the husband and you know, Sunday dinners at home and and back to the old food of lots of grains and whatever. Three or four years later, she came to see me again, stage three Parkinson's on medication. So I gave her a good spanking and said, you start again, here's where we're going. 18 months later, she was symptom free. Okay, went back to her old lifestyle, called me saying, oh, I need to be cured, I need to be cured, I'm very sick. I said, I can't help you. I can't help you because you're destroying yourself. So we have to maintain the lifestyle. The, the, the lifestyle that, that I promote, it's not a John Coleman protocol. This is research that's been done over hundreds and hundreds of years. The lifestyle that I promote is for health. It's not for illness. It's not to make people better. It's to promote health. So if we eat good food, we drink water, um, we, we relax, we love ourselves, we take time out, we exercise. And sure, we've got to work, we've got to have um, objectives in life. You know, we, we've got to be useful to ourselves as well as to other people. We need to interact with people. We're going to face stresses. So we need to develop strategies to, do, to deal with the normal stresses in life. So the John Common Protocol really isn't. It's, it's a, a lifestyle that I've seen works and, and it's been researched by many people cleverer than I am and there's books and papers and studies written about it. The supplements that I promote are supplements that, again, have been researched by really clever people and they've been trials, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials of these supplements to see what they do. And we look at the physiology and that relates to the process of Parkinson's and so on. So if we understand what causes Parkinson's, and we know that now, then we create a lifestyle for each person that reverses that cause. Customised, no doubt. Yeah. So, you know, my book will come out and it'll say, you know, here's how to get well. But in really in reality, what it's saying is you've got to get in there and understand what has caused these symptoms for you. And there's a whole section, there's about five chapters on finding out what has caused these symptoms for you as an individual and then you can go to the next section saying here's how to turn it around wonderful what a wonderful resource for the listeners That's i hope so yeah two years to write so i hope it's good <laughs> congratulations well done
Thank you so much for spending time with us today. I really appreciate your knowledge, your enthusiasm, your persistent enthusiasm. Um, I don't think we've had a story of such commitment to just setback, 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 and I'm just convinced that I'm going to do this. And as you said, the support of people around you who reaffirmed for you that this was something you can do so that you could then take on that identity of the person who is going to be the person who found the solution. If it can't be done, it's up to me to do it. That's what you said, isn't it? Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So for our listeners, how do they um, find you? When is the book coming out? How do they stay in touch? How do they find information about what you do? Yeah. All right. Um, easy, easy answers. The, my website's the best way to find me, so that's www.returntostillness.com.au um, or if you, if you Google John Coleman Parkinson's, that'll find me too. So, you know, there's a contact me um, link on, on that website. Um, when's the book coming out? Very soon. I have some page proofs. Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, Someone waving them at me as we talk. <laughs> um, so, look, I think probably October, maybe latish October. There's still a lot to do, but, you know, it's, it's exciting. It's within grasp. Um, I'm sorry, what was your other question? Well, that, that covers it. How do people find you and, and when's the book coming out? Yeah. Terrific. Brilliant. And your other books are still on Amazon, I saw, and as Kindle, so people can download. Yeah, yeah. And I actually have some uh, copies of Stock Park and Start Living um, in stock. I, the, the publisher retired and I bought up the, the remainder. So if people want them, I've got them on my website at a big discount at the moment. So you know, they can buy them because that's got a lot of, I think, good information in it yeah. um, and, and it's a great start. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. I'm sure the listeners have enjoyed this episode and I wish you all the very best with the new book and all the very best and please continue to be as enthusiastic and as forward-thinking as you have been to date. Thank you, Charlotte. I will keep in touch. Wonderful. Thank you, listeners. Please, if you've enjoyed this episode, please review and rate and recommend us to others. And I look forward to seeing you next time. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. If this is a message that resonates with you, make sure that you check out the link in the description and subscribe to get more insight on Mindset for Health, Tales of Extraordinary People.